Good, ladies and gentlemen. Um, good evening to, to you all. It is uh, my pleasure to welcome you to the global policy discussion about uh, promoting global trade, the role of exports, uh, credit agencies at the London School of Economics. And I would like uh, to thank uh, the LSE and in particular the editors of the Global Policy uh, Journal, Professor David Held and uh, Dr. Eva Maria Nack, bringing together these uh, high-level practitioners and uh, academics uh, tonight. And it is also a great pleasure for me to chair this event. And uh, I trust that we will have an evening full of exciting um, speeches and remarks and also um, fruitful discussions. I'm convinced that we have the right topic uh, at the right time. After the 2008 and 9 recession, the crisis in the Eurozone remains the single, uh, the single biggest downside risk for the global economy and the main discussion we currently see how governments can react is to stimulate growth. International trade plays a crucial role in strengthening uh, the global economy and generating growth through trade has been a central pillar in the policy strategy of many countries. Government financing instruments such as export credit agencies have successfully supported international trade flows during the last decades. They do now and I believe they have an important role to play to support international trade in the future. What we want to discuss tonight is what is the relevance of a European export credit agency in the Euro debt crisis, why do exporters need export credit insurance schemes, what is the role of a BRIC ECA in a fast-growing economy, and what about credit for export finance and also the Basel III implications. It is a privilege for me introducing our speakers tonight, and we will start with a keynote speech from Lars Tunnell. Lars is Executive Vice President and CEO of International Finance Corporation, a member of the World Bank Group. Lars is leading IFC in its mission to promote <coughs> sustainable private sector development and has advanced growth of IFC's business and its mission to create opportunities in emerging markets. He has visited many countries, uh, very impressive, over 90 countries, um, there are 60 developing countries, to see firsthand how IFC can best support. Prior to that, Lars Tunnell was the CEO of SCB, of course a major commercial and investment bank. Lars Tunnell will speak for approximately 20 minutes. Initial remarks from and a panel discussion with all speakers will follow here in front of you all. And uh, this will be about an hour, so we have enough time, uh, approximately 30 minutes, to discuss and for a discussion with all of you. So allow me to introduce our panelists as well. Welcome Hans-Joachim Henkel. He is the Deputy Director General of the German Federal Ministry of Economics and Technology. Dr. Henkel is a very well-reputed expert in international trade. He is responsible for the instruments of external economic promotion, export, finance and investments in foreign countries. We have John Coleman with us. John is the new chairman of the British Exporters Association. John is also assistant treasurer of BAE Systems with 30 years experience managing the group's global export credit insurance policies and structuring and arranging export finance packages. 
Welcome, Gita Mwereda. Gita is the Vice President of the Bern Union, the leading association for export, credit, and investment insurance worldwide. Gita is also the sole executive director of ECGC, the export credit agency of India, and prior to this, she was the general manager in charge of the banking division of ECGC. Peter Lukita is on the panel. Peter is the Global Head of Export Finance and Global Specialist Finance of HSBC. He has advised on and arranged finance for projects in many countries, including CE, Turkey, Brazil, Mexico, as well as Western Europe. Welcome, Danny Kaur. Welcome home, I must say, Danny Kaur. Professor Danny Kaur is Professor of Economics and Kuwait Professor at the LSE. He is also a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council, serves on editorial boards, and is visiting professor at the National University of Singapore. And last but not least, we have Peter Carrico. Peter is head of country risk and responsible for international relations at SBCE. And before joining the Brazilian Export Credit Insurance Agency, he held various positions to emerging markets activities in financial institutions in Brazil. So a fantastic panel tonight. I'm really glad that you all make it and made it uh, from all over the world. Uh, and I uh, would like to thank you as well for coming tonight. Enjoy the discussion and please give our guests a very warm welcome. And, uh, I'd like to invite Lars Tunnel for his keynote speech, Last the Four Years. Thank you, Andreas, and thank you very much for uh, organizing this event and, and uh, inviting me to speak here today. Uh, it's great to be here and, and uh, to have a chance to interact with all of you. Let me also thank uh, Professor David Held and uh, Eva Maria Nag, Dr. Maria Eva Nag, for, for being from the Global Policy, uh, the editors, and uh, for their work in organizing this altogether. I think uh, this subject that we have here, the importance of global trade and the role of the export uh, credit agencies within that, is a very, very timely. Uh, as Andreas mentioned, we are right now in, in the middle, and we all know it, in, of the European financial crisis, and trade is being discussed. Is it? And there is a lot of efforts, and we'll come back to that in, in many areas where now it's being questioned, should we really have as much trade or what type of trade should we have? And, and uh, at the same time, we know that it's the international trade flows, and especially the south-south between developing countries and the rising imports from the, um, from the industrial world to the developing countries that is really have been able to keep the, the economy going and, and been central to the, the uh, mitigating some of the negative things that are happening. And, and we've seen how the export credit agencies really stepped up after the 2008 uh, financial crisis. They, together with multilateral uh, development institutions like IFC, have be, been playing a very, very strong role in supporting trade through expanded and new trade finance programs. And uh, I think that even as financing conditions uh, improve and the crisis hopefully recedes, uh, support for the trade and trade finance programs are going to be more critical than ever. I think we're in for a period now with the Basel III rules and, and uh, many other things that are happening that, that uh, there's going to be a shortage of risk capital, there's going to be a shortage of, of capital in general. And uh, 
the, that's particularly true, uh, I think, for, for the European banking system. So I think the, the uh, export credit agencies is going to continue to have a very important role even going forward. As we all know, there is a heated uh, fiscal policy debate going on right now in, in uh, Europe over what is the right balance between austerity um, that are required to put the, the uh, public finances on a sounder footing, but at the same time the need to support through various stimulus uh, packages economic growth that, that actually can help us get out of the crisis. And as we all know, there is no easy answers. The public deficits are very large, and the debt markets right now are extremely risk adverse. So from that perspective, uh, there is very little room for public stimulus. But the international trade, especially trade with the fast-growing emerging market countries, is a source of, of growth and net job creation uh, that Europe cannot afford to take for granted. Imports from the developing countries accounted for more than half of the global import growth since the crisis. During the 2009 global trade went down dramatically. In, in uh, 2010, it uh, rebounded, but I think it will be quite a few years before we see actually volumes being back at the pre-crisis level. But since the crisis, EU's uh, export growth to BRICS have far outpaced import, import growth. European imports from the BRICS rose about 12% in 2011, and European exports to the BRIC countries grew by about 21%. The World uh, Trade Organization released a very interesting uh, study recently that suggested that these import statistics actually probably understate the real benefits of trade in the developed world. Global supply chains are making our emphasis on value of imports and exports and country of origin uh, very almost irrelevant. We should really think about value added and where is that occurring? and to really get an accurate picture of what's happening. The study <coughs> takes an example from the United States uh, company Apple that we all, I'm sure you all here, especially at LSE, are very familiar with. And uh, the US is, of course, the largest market. China is the sec uh, company's second largest market. Apple has outsourced all of its component production and assembly to its, uh, of its products. and that allows it to concentrate on what it uh, does best, design and market uh, really popular electronic devices. The uh, assembly of the iPhone is done in China. <coughs> Under the traditional measures, the US has a trade deficit on iPhones with China of about $1.9 billion. If you use a value added measure, it's just $73 million. Quite a dramatic difference. Deficits with uh, Japan and Korea add up to almost $1 billion. Also interesting, if you start to look at the breakdown in the share of the iPhone sales price attributed to different component suppliers, and the economist uh, did examine this last year, of an average sale price uh, of $560, uh, Apple gets $368. This covers Apple's spending on things like design, marketing, shipping, activities that largely create domestic jobs in the United States and profits for shareholders. The components is just about $178, dollars, 
which is divided among suppliers from, say, Samsung in Korea and others in Japan. And uh, you also got suppliers like Micron and uh, Texas Instruments in the US and SDM Microelectronics from Italy, they get a share as well. So the traditional measure of trade, the 1.9 billion uh, US trade deficit in, with China, completely obscures the production and jobs created by the iPhone in the US, Japan, Korea, and Italy. So I think one of the things that we should do uh, for all of us that are involved in this is try to help develop the precise statistics to help us all understand and explain what trade deficits really mean and which workers really benefit um, from the trade so we can explain that to the public. Now, there's another aspect of this, uh, which is that, that Apple is a great cautionary tale about the importance of mainstreaming strong environmental and social labor standards throughout the supply chain. Apple's brand and its reputation has suffered because of evidence that suppliers are mistreating some of their workers with un unfair and sometimes even involuntary overtime and unfair pay. You know, for IFC, this is a very important thing, uh, and I will could make a whole speech around this, but I save you from that tonight because that's not the aim. But I think it's, it's very important to start to look at the whole supply chain. Another example of how trade figures can mislead us and, and lead us in the wrong way is the, uh, uh, about jobs is the solar energy industry. As you probably know, the, the price of solar components have dropped sharply over the last couple of years as supply has risen with new manufacturers in the developing world. And some of the manufacturers have benefited from subsidies. And on the uh, demand side, many of the countries, as a result of the financial crisis, have been forced to actually take away subsidies on, on when people buy these panels. But uh, this price decline have actually had a benefit. It has made the solar uh, panels much more competitive against traditional fossil fuel-based energies and stimulated demand. And just this month, the US Commerce Department imposed the dumping tariff of about 31% on some Chinese manufacturers. We can ask ourselves, was this smart, smart or not? The tariffs actually go up to 250% for some, some of the uh, manufacturers. Will this tariff really save jobs in the United States? The US imported about $3 billion worth of Chinese-made solar panels last year. According to Solar Foundation, a US nonprofit which tracks the solar industry, about 100,000 Americans work in the solar industry in the US. And jobs in this industry has been growing by about 7% a year. Most of these workers are not employed in the manufacturing. They're actually in the sales marketing, design, engineering, and installation. These uh, jobs tend to be high-wage jobs, uh, at least above the, the average of uh, the medium US wage. Now that you put in the tariffs, you will actually <coughs> uh, diminish demand for solar projects, which will hurt all of these people. So the answer to our question is, no, it will not create jobs. It will actually uh, destroy jobs. And uh, it is, the, again, the interest of everybody that I think we measure what is happening, communicate this uh, to, to the people who are, are being benefited. 
and it's not just the consumers that are benefiting from trade. And I think there is a role for, for multilateral development banks and the export credit agencies, along with the World Trade Organization, to help improve, as I said earlier, the statistics and data. The faster pace of import growth in the developing world simply reflects the difference in economic growth rates, and this gap will grow over time. <coughs> the IMF latest forecast uh, from April predicts economic growth with average of 5.7% this year and 6% next year for the developing world. The forecast for Europe is a 0.3% uh, contraction for 2012 and a growth of 0.9% for 2013, and it's looking more and more shaky, I think. Europe and the US were the source of the financial crisis and have struggled to restore its growth. We hope that uh, we are putting this recession behind us. But still, the faster growth in the developing world is, is a long-running trend and will uh, probably uh, continue over the next couple of decades. Faster population growth, urbanization, high demand for infrastructure are all contributing for the massive demand for capital investments in the developing world. Rising middle classes, in the, especially in the middle-income countries and the BRICS, um, I think are also going to be a major source of growth. And we're actually now seeing how many of these countries like China are trying to put emphasis not on infrastructure growth but more on, on their, their consumers. And uh, I think, again, Europe and the U.S. and Japan will benefit from this economic dynamism, but only if we can avoid trade protections, something that is very difficult to do during the high times of what we have, high employment, unemployment, economic hardship. You just look at, at the uh, situation in Spain with over 40 percent uh, youth unemployment. So I think we owe it to our children and our grandchildren to, to really resist protectionists, no matter how politically painful. The developed countries can benefit only if firms can continue to get the trade finance they need to support their business. Traditionally, the biggest banks in trade finance were European, particularly the French, actually. Since August of last year, European banks have been, to a large extent, had, had, had problems with their U.S. dollar funding. The money market funds uh, the, that, they, uh, that used to be the major source of U.S. dollar funding has basically stopped uh, completely investing in, in European banks. And this has had, uh, this has been disastrous for trade financing. We've seen how many of the French banks and other banks in Europe have really pulled out of, of this market. And for the poor countries, who are the ones really using uh, the trade finance mechanism, the, the letters of credits, uh, versus the more open uh, count transactions, um, have been very, very difficult. A survey of 229 banks of the International Chamber of Commerce published this month indicated that about a third of banks see fees or letter of credits raising dramatically this year. Importers in the poorest countries are hardest hit. They have the fewest choices for trade finance. And if you think about it from their perspective, especially the ones who are importing commodities where commodity prices have gone up for the same volume, if oil prices have gone up 30% means that they need for the same amount of oil 
need 30% more trade finance. So that is really a, a vicious circle for them. And you know, these poor countries have very little choice. They face not uh, only higher cost, but in sometimes even the inability to get the basic uh, products like oil and food for their population. There has been a uh, concerted international effort to keep up the flow of trade uh, finance. Public institutions have expanded trade finance programs as the private sector market has pulled back. In 2009, the G20 called on international finance institutions to make 250 billion available to underwrite trade transactions as part of the economic recovery plan. The export credit agencies moved to fill the gap in export credit insurance, and as Andreas Glassen mentions in his paper, they almost doubled their market share between 2008 and, uh, and 2010 to 28%. IFC realized that the poorest countries were the first and hardest hit by tighter credit conditions. We expanded our global trade finance program, uh, which provided guarantees, and we also established a new global trade liquidity program. Enough, it wasn't enough just with the, the risk sharing, but we also needed to actually fund some of these programs. And there has been strong demand uh, for both programs over the past three years, uh, particularly for banks operating in Africa. As of March, the GTLP alone had supported over 20 billion in trade. And last year, the guarantee program provided 4.6 billion in guarantees in over 3,000 transactions, involving 216 banks in 89 countries. And since 2009, the GTFP the, the, um, has provided over 10 billion in guarantees. Earlier this year, taking another step, our board approved a new critical commodity finance program trying to meet some of the problems I, I mentioned in response to the rising food prices and commodity prices. This program will provide trade finance for agribusiness transactions, and <coughs> we, ex uh, we expect to support 18 billion of trade over the next three years. Our new global warehouse finance program allows farmers to take loans using their crop as collateral, which gives them easier access to finance and enables them to have more regular income as well as capital uh, to invest in production. Trade finance programs at the international development institutions and at export credit agencies alone cannot completely fill the trade finance gap. We have to maintain incentives for private financial institutions to remain in the business of trade finance. And fortunately here, Basel III is creating some real problems, and I'm sure in the panel discussions we'll come back to that. But you have the issues of liquidity ratio, the conversion ratios, and, and a number of other things. And I applaud that we have now working groups trying to work with the Basel Committee on the bank supervision as they work, try to, to mitigate some of these rules or perhaps make them more, more flexible. Trade finance is a priority for IFC because we've seen the high development impact these relatively safe investments can have on developing countries. In, for example, in our work on, on the global trade finance uh, program, I opened the door to us to engage for the first time in 15 fragile and conflict-affected states. This is the really poor countries and where we now can go in 
I was, for example, in South Sudan just 10 days ago and, and talking to banks there and how we can help them. This program has helped African companies and banks to develop relationships with the international finance institutions. And of the trade finance uh, guarantees issued under this program, more, more than 80% have benefited small and medium-sized enterprises. And half have supported business in the poorest countries. And more than a quarter has supported farmers and agribusiness. And yet, IFC's trade and supply chain finance programs are just a drop in the bucket compared with existing demands. And the market is strangling the traditional trade finance actors and putting increased burden on alternative providers to replace traditional players. And this is why I have urged the G20 to support another round of increases in public trade finance programs to ensure that market liquidity issues do not hinder our efforts to support growth. And we particularly want to protect the SMEs, who are the job creators, which, as we all know, are very often struggling to get cre uh, credit even in the best of times. So in conclusion, it's very important for all of us to continue working together to support the availability of trade finance. Last year, Bern Union members insured a record of 1.7 trillion worth of exports. That's 10% of international trade. We cannot be complacent over short-term improvements in financial conditions. We must ensure that importers and exporters get the trade financing they need, even as Europe, uh, European and US banks continue to conserve capital. The export credit agencies acted as a counter-cyclical force and sharply increased support since the financial crisis. And I think it's very important that they now continue with that role. And IFC would like to help all of you as, as partners to increase your businesses, especially in the poorest countries where the trade finance is scarce, even in the best of financial market conditions. In fact, we are already working with many members of uh, within the Bern Union. We have a network with 600 financial <coughs> institutions around the world. And so that through that, we can actually expand your reach to new markets. Our roles are very complementary. And um, basically, the export credit agencies support exporters, and IFC can support importers. We have advisory programs to connect importers in small emerging markets with export credit agencies, and we can share best practice in environmental and social risk management. I realize that high volumes of uh, support could draw questions as to whether this public financial support for private companies is appropriate during time of budget austerity. Like IFC, the export credit agencies are generally required to up operate under requirement of financial sustainability. And like IFC, funding the export credit agencies is a good way to get the biggest bank, uh, bank for the back in development, whether it be for the development of domestic jobs in export sectors of industrialized countries or the private sector development and poverty alleviation in poor countries. Both are worth priorities, and achieving them will strengthen the global economy. And I hope that we can make the case for public support for trade finance and trade finance in general. We very much would like to work with all the export credit agencies as well as the Bern Union. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Lars, for your very insightful speech. And I think you covered so many topics that we could have a couple of evenings discussing tariffs and global trade and ECAs, etc. I would like to narrow it, narrow it down a little bit and, and start with some um, initial remarks from all of our panelists. I would like to start with uh, Achim Henkel. And if I narrow it down and we start with the, with the Eurozone crisis and the relevance, if any, and the role of export credit agencies, um, in the Euro debt crisis, uh, what do you think? What is what is the relevance? How can governments in Europe, European ECA, support um, growth uh, in this situation? Well, I I think I can echo a bit um, what Lars ex already explained about the role of ECAs, and um, if I may, I would try to to bring it down to some rather simple questions, which for some of you might be too simple, but perhaps to start it would be helpful. Um, what an ECA does is support the business between exporters and an importer, a buyer in another country, um, mainly through insurance, in our case in some countries, through finance, that the credit is provided in addition. So creating stability in their relation. Um, this is done under certain rules. Um, I think the most common one are the WTO rules, the Agreement on Subsidies and Countervailing Measures, which imply that this has to be, at least in the long term, self-sustained. Um, and uh, this means that everybody who is bound by the WTO rules, and uh, that is almost everybody in the world, um, has to do the business in a sound way in order not to make losses in the long term. Uh, this is being refined, at least for the OECD countries, through a lot of specific arrangements, how to do the business. Um, and it's very easy to explain what is not the role of ECAs in the European debt crisis. It's not providing support to countries. Uh, this is the job of uh, central banks, of mechanisms developed through the finance ministers in coordinating umbrellas of uh, hopefully sufficient size to um, get along with the crisis. What ECAs do is much more, uh, much, clo much closer to the bottom. Um, it's supporting the business between exporters and importers. Um, and this means um, making sound business feasible even during a crisis. And this is what we did uh, in the 2008 crisis. It meant for Germany um, doubling the business in terms of percentage in German exports, which was not uh, extraordinary if you look to the figures. We went from 1.7%, that was the all-time low in 2007, to 3.4%. Um, so we doubled in percentage of exports. It meant coming from 16 to 21 billion we did per year before to 32 um, in 2010 and 30 billion euro of export credit support um, in la the last year. So almost doubling in nominal figures too. Um, why can an export ex credit agency in such a crisis do things the private market is not providing? One of the reasons is there is a more patient shareholder with a long-term view, um, which wants the ECA to do sound business, but who does not look to the immediate impact um, in returns, 
um, and has a much more long-term view than the private business can provide. The other strong point for export credit agencies is the capability to provide tailor-made solutions, and this even for small and medium-sized business. For a bank, a credit of uh, half a billion or of 10 million is almost the same in, uh, input in labor, in costs to the bank. For us, we are in the position to uh, invest work even for small business and this way make things feasible. Um, and this is extremely important during the crisis when things are getting more complicated. You have to be very careful about what you do. To, you have to invest a lot of work and uh, you, you are able to push things forward if you really use this capacity to do tailor-made uh, solutions. Um, it's the capacity too with this long-term view of the shareholder to do medium and long-term business even in times of crisis where others have a rather short-term view on what they allow themselves under risk concerns to do. Um, we have very nice examples from the 2008 crisis where we helped, where there are exporters who exist today because we could help them. There were liquidity problems with buyers in Eastern Europe, which were sound buyers with a sound business, but which needed credits instead of what they had agreed before to have cash terms. And we helped to transform this business into credits, and these credits are punctually being paid. The business went on, and both the importer and the exporter have sound business in their hands. Um, we had an important role for short-term business because the private credit insurers withdrew from the market and we were capable to come in, not because we have a bigger risk appetite, but because we worked tailor-made, so we did not say all link to automotive is bad, but we're capable really to look case by case in what was going on and to take the sound part of the business. And we handed it over in Germany to the private market afterwards and they found it sound and took it over. Um, we have the capability, as I already mentioned, to support small and medium-sized business, especially in times of crisis, um, and uh, create products which make it more attractive to take these business for the private partners we want to see in the business by standardizing, for instance, and making things easier. So I think there is a very important role for ECAs in the European uh, debt crisis we, we face today, but it has to be a sound role bound by the rules I mentioned in the beginning with a long-term view really to do, continue to do sound business. I can ask you, John, if I ask the, the new chairman of the British Export Association, it could be a very, very simple question uh, now, do you agree? But <laughs> I would like to ask you, what, why do exporters need, from your point of view, export credit insurance? I think the, the, the simple answer to that is that exporting is a risky business. Um, any manufacturer who's starting off facing its domestic market has a number of concerns. Um, why is it risky? Well, if you're large, small or medium, whether you're um, an experienced exporter or whether indeed you're a first-time exporter doubling your toes in the export market, there, there are risks. And what are those risks? They're credit risks. They are political risks. So you need an insurance cover to at least take away those elements of risk to your business uh, and, and survival of your business. 
What does that mean in terms of the, uh, the, the ECAs um, and the private market? Well, on the short-term uh, business, there's a strong private market uh, which does pick up a lot of the credit insurance requirements, so that's covering payment risk, political uh, contract frustration risk, bond unfair calling risk. Um, there are gaps, though, in the market. There are areas where the private market won't touch. Um, so those areas where we look to the ECAs, uh, and in the UK, that's um, UK Export Finance, really to, to complement, as their role is, what is available in the private market. That means primarily providing capacity, at least in the British exporters' view, providing capacity where capacity doesn't exist, maybe particularly large deals, maybe supplementing the private market, right down to the smaller end of the scale where there are individual one-off transactions where an exporter cannot obtain cover in the market uh, and, and needs support from the ECA. So your, your key risks in terms of receipt of money, maintaining your contract or in the event of contract frustration covering your loss position, covering your, your bonds which you would inevitably have to pre uh, provide uh, in association with your export contract uh, for unfair calling cover, bond issue, issue of export uh, contract bonds is, is, is pricey, the bank's charged, but in addition to that, you'll have to put your credit line um, up to support the bond, or maybe you have to cash collateralize. Your ECA has a product that can, uh, can ease the, the stress and the burden of that uh, in terms of, uh, of a bond support issue scheme, uh, which we're pleased to see is now in place here in the UK. Um, that helps the exporter to get into the market. I think at a more uh, macro level, research has shown that those companies who do get into the export market and, and, and are successful, not only does their productivity uh, improve, um, they also uh, manage to survive the downturn uh, far more um, easily and successfully than uh, individual manufacturers who, who are relying on their domestic market. So I think in a, in, here in the UK, where we have a, uh, a, a national export challenge has been announced where we are due to be increasing our, uh, our annual exports from, I think it's 450 billion sterling to a trillion by the year uh, 2020. Um, there's, a big, there's a big task in hand uh, for, for, for UK manufacturing and for UK exporters. And part of that challenge, and very substantial part of that challenge, will fall um, to UK export finance to support that, that, that export effort uh, on behalf of you know, the country, the balance of payments. Um, and, in, and those individual exporters. I think I would say just in, in conclusion, um, Bexa has done a, over the last couple of years, done a benchmarking exercise where we've stated, it's initially a, a, as a benchmarking of UK export finance against um, other, if you like, competitor ECAs around the world, both OECD and non-OECD. Uh, core of it is to, to look at the product mix and taking 10 key products and matching to see where in the mix UK export finance sit. It makes interesting reading, I would say that as chairman of, of, of the British Exporters Association, but, it, but not only is it a comparator for UK uh, export finance, it is a comparator between uh, export credit agencies uh, and, and does show differences in, in level of support uh, and, and maybe quality of support. Given give the opportunity to, to ask Peter a question and combination to, to that one, but um, luckily you have no Euro debt crisis, but you are coming from a very, very fast growing economy. <coughs> Uh, and the relevance of exports would be really interesting. What is the relevance of exports to India? But it's in particular, what is the relevance of, of um, an export credit agency in a fast-growing economy um, from your point of view? 
I think uh, uh, fast-growing economies, when we're going to mention, I'm sure the acronym BRIC is hanging uh, on everyone's mind. So, um, simple statistics. Simple statistics say that 3 billion people, 40% of world population, one-fourth of the landmass GDP, combined GDP of $13.7 trillion, and foreign exchange reserve of $4 trillion, exports of $2.5 trillion, which is more than 16% of the world's merchandise exports. So I think when we uh, discussed talking about emerging, this is what came to our mind. But when we look at uh, the individual countries and uh, how <coughs> the respective ECAs have played a role in the uh, development of trade, um, I would I would <coughs> say that the uh, the intra BRICS trade itself is around 10% of the total. So you know, there's always an apprehension that there's not much of cohesiveness amongst these. Totally different economies, and you know, uh, there is absolutely no commonalities when it comes to geopolitics. But it looks like uh, things are changing uh, with the understanding between the countries. So, uh, no doubt, uh, without any uncertainty, the largest uh, constituent is uh, China, and China has uh, its uh, Senesure, China Exim, China Development. Uh, Bank. All the organizations put together, they supported loans of about $110 billion, which is even more than the World Bank's commitments. And Sudishar, which is a member of the Burn Union, our association of credit insurers, we found that they had done about $177 billion. And Sudishar's share in the BRICS ECA's business is almost around 60% and it's growing at 30%, and they're also very liberal in their claim settlements of 73%. Okay, uh, moving on to India. There are two agencies in India, uh, ECGC, which is the Credit Insurer and Guarantee Corporation, and we also have the Exim Bank of India, which came in much later. I mean, when ECGC was 25 years old, Exim Bank was set up, and uh, ECGC has been one of the earliest members of the Burn Union, too. And uh, in the recent past, quite contrary to what is happening around the world and other ECAs, ECGC's business has been recording a steady growth, and compared to last year, it is 15% growth, and uh, the recoveries are also very good. Why? Because we have a very unique product, apart from ensuring the receivables of the Indian exporters. This uh, big portfolio of ensuring the bank's export credits. This is not something which has been introduced post-2008, just as other ECAs have done. This has been existing since 1960s. So it's a time-tested uh, cover, and it's regulated by an insurer, insurance regulatory authority. It's subject to actuarial um, assessments, and so we have to provide for premium deficiency reserve if we are, you know, 
cumulatively, if there are going to be the net premium claim ratios um, go haywire. So this having been the key role of the Indian ECA, as you would have seen the export performance of the country, there's absolutely been no dirt for those support for those banks who are very actively into the trade finance. In India, 15% of exporters manage on their own. They don't go for financing help with anyone. 15% depend on the supplier's credit that they may put in place. Another 15% tend to organize buyer's credit through institutions. But the balance, 55% of the exporters, totally depend on the banking system for their credit needs, both at the pre-shipment and the post-shipment stage. And this is where the ACA has played a very important role. And through the last four years, the support has grown so much that today the ACA business itself Two-thirds of it is insuring the bank credit. And about 70% of the export credit dispersed in the country is insured by the ACA. Despite, I mean, even the current year, uh, there's been a slowdown. But then we continue to grow. And what we have observed is, we uh, coming to Exim Bank, it, it basically, Exim Bank of India basically plays a role in the medium and long term and in project finance. But uh, the bigger part has always been played by the multinational banks, particularly French banks. And they were all there, all, all along. But suddenly in the last one year, everyone has vanished. So for the project finance needs, we see that the Japanese have stepped in, and the State Bank of India, which is a government-owned bank, they have stepped in to play a bigger role. We at ECGC, we are very gung-ho still about the export growth, and particularly the support we have been giving to the services <coughs> exports for which India has really established. And as we all know, the services exports didn't uh, you know, suffer so much as the merchandise exports during the crisis years. That's been the crucial role of ACA in India. Thank very you. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, Danny, you have a couple of uh, strong supporters on government financing instruments such as ECAs promoting global trade. But, um, the, the interesting question from, from your part of you might be, is there a necessity of a global balance uh, of exports and imports? We, we are always talk about exports and how to support export. What about the other, the other side? You would like to give us some water instead of wine. Okay. Thank, thank you, Andre. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm, I'm not a practitioner, and I you know, am unable to get insights onto the relative effectiveness of different export credit agency related instruments. So I've learned a lot from discussion on the panel, listening to the panel, about how there are different instruments such as providing finance, capacity building, providing insurance and credit on the export side. But I thought being an outsider, I could pose the question, what if all of these instruments were working already at their optimum. 
what might we do to continue to, as the title says, continue to promote global trade? And it strikes one that there's an asymmetry in how we are currently approaching this problem. While the part before the colon says, promote global trade, the part after the colon talks only about exports, about promoting exports. And trade, global trade, has two sides to the equation, as Andreas has said. There's an exports, and there's an import side. Where is it that we're going to get the greatest mileage to promote global trade? By continuing to push exports, or by thinking through what happens on the other side of the equation, the import side of the equation? Now, I'm not so naive, I hope, to suggest that people who are involved in promoting exports don't already think about what happens on the other side of that trading equation. I simply want to ask, what happens if we shift our emphasis and perspective a little bit? And to do this, I'm actually building on some of the points that Lars had mentioned in his broad, overarching introductory lecture. Because when you think about it, trade is already one of the major success stories of economic history. Yes, it's true that in the last 50 years, our incomes, even taking into account the Great Depression, taking into account the 2008 crisis, incomes in the world have grown to such a degree that dwarfs anything that's happened in the preceding 2,000 years. We have achieved levels of economic prosperity that people thought were unimaginable. Side by side with that, global trade has grown up to four times more than growth in income has. This is a hugely successful economic machine. Ordinary citizens now get to enjoy a variety of goods at cheaper prices thanks to global trade. Why do we need to promote global trade more? Well, here's the rub, you see. The way the international political economy is going, most people out there in the global trading system don't look at just the export side of this equation. They look at what's happening to imports. And their perceptions have for a long time now been 180 degrees different from how both academics and many policy practitioners approach the global trade problem. Ordinary citizens look out there at trade and they think of the first thing that comes to their mind is this is foreigners taking our jobs. It's not nearly as bad as when we let foreigners come in as immigrants and they take in our jobs, they take away our jobs, but in some ways it's invisible and it's even worse. And that's the big international political economy problem. It used to be that major economic powers like the United States had an enlightened approach to this. It used to be the mantra of US policymaking vis-a-vis -vis global <coughs> trade was protect the worker, not the job. It was okay for Apple to hire 700,000 contractors, mostly outside the United States, and only employ 43,000 Americans in the US. That was okay because you didn't need these 700,000 jobs within the continental United States. 
you protected the workers to go on to do their design in Cupertino, or to channel them into software programming for ever better apps within on the Apple iPhone, but you allow the jobs to migrate. But that's no longer the case. The mood and the tone of foreign policy making no longer sits with that old mantra. So just before Steve Jobs' untimely death, most people would agree, Barack Obama's question to Steve Jobs was, you employ, among other people, Foxconn's 1.2 million employees. It is Foxconn that Lars described that puts together the 70 million iPhones, the 30 million iPads, the 60 million Apple Macintosh products that we import to the United States. Can't we do something by bringing these jobs back? So here's what I think is going to happen. We can boost exports as much as we like, but the global economy has to remain in balance. And to the extent that it's not in balance, that draws political attention. In electorates, where politicians need to be mindful of the mood of the electorate, ever greater global trade, often in people's minds, whatever the reality, gets translated into our jobs being <coughs> offshore and outsourced to the rest of the world. And if you don't think this is a problem, well, look at the world's two most successful economies today. They are Germany and they are, the, and they are China. They are successful economies today because they export precisely what we are here to discuss. But China's traditional export markets in the US and Western Europe have collapsed. How has China continued to grow? It now exports to the rest of developing Asia. China and East Asia have developed a cluster of trade excellence. We used to call this decoupling, but decoupling has become a dirty word, so we don't say this anymore. Germany, how has Germany continued to be a successful, growing, export-oriented economy? Well, here's the surprising fact. While Germany's principal trading partners have historically been the rest of the EU and the United States, today, Germany exports more to developing Asia than it does to the United States. Germany's exports to China alone are as large as that to the US. That success in being able to be outward-looking, export-oriented, is what we are here to promote. But that's not the only thing that the global economy now sees with respect to Germany and China. And here's where, where I'm going to conclude to try and drive home that point, but how trade has two sides to the equation. Yes, there's exports, but there's also imports. Because not by coincidence, both Germany and China now draw ire and resistance from the rest of the global trading system. Both of them stand accused of benefiting unfairly from undervalued currencies for different reasons. And both of them stand accused of having citizens that do not save enough, that save, sorry, that save too much, but do not consume enough. Even as both Germany and China will point to how they have successfully promoted exports, and they have successfully undergone internal processes and reforms that allow them to remain internationally competitive. 
So the conclusion is, one day soon, when you go to your Google search box, and you type in as your first <coughs> word, trade, the, what Google will fill in is not export credit agencies, but it will feed in imbalance. That trade imbalances will become the major feature of how we think the global trading system will evolve. And unless we repair that, I would argue, incorrect perception and unfair perception in ways that Lars has outlined in his overarching talk, I think a system of promoting global trade simply by focusing on only one side of the equation is going to reach limits very quickly. Thank you very much. Th thank you, Danny. Well understood. Uh, I will stop continuously asking all the panelists about uh, <coughs> the relevance of export credit. <laughs> or give me give me the opportunity to ask Peter maybe about the balance and because credit is both for exporters and importers. So, um, what about the availability of, of credit for export fines, which is also uh, or implies importers, buyers, and exporters? Well, the current liquidity gap is there any liquidity gap? What's the current situation? Okay, I'm going to be much more specific, yeah. I think, than Danny. So I'm, I'm going to talk much more about medium to long-term export finance, and it's very specific to my area. And I wanted just to comment on some of the themes, some of the current trends, some of the things I see. And to start off, just to put it into perspective, just to, see, to tell you where I see the medium-term ECA markets. Uh, last year, I reckon it was about $90 billion. That compares to a pre-Lehman figure of around $35 billion. So it gives you a... a, a perspective, I think, of how, how the business has grown over the last four or five years. And we perennially in the bank used to discuss the future of ECAs. I'm sure we've all had that joke. Um, well, what's the future of ECAs? Well, the last five years, it's been very profound in terms of understanding, both externally and I think within organizations like HSBC, where today this business is very much central to our unique business development in terms of both client development, in terms of uh, sovereign development, in terms of FI development. So. You know, the, 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 so the process has developed beyond all recognition over the last four or five years. That trend has continued this year, the first four months of this year, we see volumes increasing again, uh, less deals so far, but again, gives you a dimension in terms of uh, the size of deals that are being concluded with the export finance agencies around the world. The key sectors for me still remain resource and energy, transportation, telecommunications, um, and the, but the CapEx program in the world continues unabated and we're seeing countries today with demands for CapEx and I quote and I have quoted in recent uh, talks that I've given that Australia, which uniquely for me has never been an ECA market, today has a $15 billion CapEx program for LNG uh, of which ECA uh, supports a fundamental basis for that. So it gives you an idea of what, what is happening out there in, in the marketplace. So given the fact that Global growth is, to some extent, supported by the, the ECA evolution. I see governments around the world continuing to develop and support their ECA schemes, or their programs, I should say, from a U.S. perspective. And recently, the U.S. debate has been quite interesting. I was in Washington a couple of months ago when the whole debate within the U.S. Uh, government was about, should we support export, should we not support export, should we reauthorize U.S. exim? Well, seemingly, as, a, as I speak today, it's been, the U.S. exim has been reauthorized at the new figure of $140 billion, as opposed to what was being debated, well, it should be less than that. But that's a, a measure for me of where the U.S. export program is going, and Danny refers to the U.S. job issues. 
Well, I can assure you that the messages I was hearing quite loudly in, in the US when I was there was very much about supporting jobs and supporting uh, companies in, in the US. Some other trends then, I mean, the commentary we've heard a lot about exporters and, and the relations with exporters, but again, a big trend change for me has been the acknowledgement by buyers uh, around the world and CFOs and treasurers understanding this product, which a few years ago was quite a esoteric, unique sort of product. It was seen as bureaucratic, slightly inflexible, took a long time. Today, every CFO or treasurer looking at a CapEx program will have ECA optionality in, in that program. And I think that's a fundamental change. And we all know the statistic about buyers actually giving the mandates today. When I came to this business 15 years ago, it was exporters that gave the mandates out. Today, 95% of mandates are awarded by the buyers. The fact that we have, fortunately as an institution, relationships on both sides of the equation, going back to Dan's point about importer-exporter solutions, that's exactly how we approach the problem and, and, and the uh, solution to those problems. Um, again, another theme about along, along the lines of long-term dollars underpinning margins, well, what we've seen during the crisis of Lehman's and then last year was certainly dollar margins increasing dramatically. I think today the margins have stabilized to some extent. I think the ECB intervention last December certainly brought in euro liquidity, but what it did do is create a, a much more basic um, stability for the interbank lending rate. So at the moment, I, th I would say margins generally, both in euro and dollars, are relatively stable. But again, we're facing another crisis around the corner. What will happen with respect to Greece, no one quite knows. But the reaction will be, as we've seen in the last two big issues, the Eurozone crisis last year, and, and the Lehman's as prices went up substantially. And I think that's what will happen if this, if this comes about again. And commentary has been around the retreat of European banks, uh, particularly in Asia and LATAM, moving away from a global positioning uh, to a much more regional position. I don't think competition's gone away, but I think there are less banks globally in the market than there used to be, which is not a good thing. Um, but there is a regional focus for some of those banks. So there's definitely a change in terms of, uh, let's say, the availability of bank funding overall. Having said that, so we've heard the Japanese banks, or commentary around the Japanese banks coming in, certainly they have liquidity. The US banks have liquidity, and certain banks will still be in the game like ourselves. So I don't see that as being a, a fundamental problem. Basel III, which we'll come on to, certainly has some impact on, on that particular uh, process. Um, another aspect to the, let's say, the change of government support for ECA has been the introduction of direct lending schemes. We've seen that from the US. But it's been particularly relevant with the north-south divide in terms of Europe. There's a pricing differentiation between, let's say, Saatchi and Thessaly pricing compared to Hermes and the Nordic ECAs. That, is in, that has meant that uh, certainly countries like Italy have had to find other solutions. They found that in the form of CDP, the state bank, providing direct funding opportunities. And we welcome the direct funding, uh, let's say, alignment alongside uh, ECA funding and indeed commercial bank funding, indeed other forms of funding. We see that as complementary to the, to the solution for clients around the world. And at the moment, I don't see that changing. I, I think the direct funding schemes will continue. Uh, they were brought in as, as, let's say, temporary or maybe emergency measures post the Lehman's crisis, but today I see them as being very much a stabilising force in offering long to medium-term solutions. Uh, in 2011, the largest ECA market, which I must say surprised me when, on, on reflection, was, was Russia, which most of us didn't see, I certainly didn't see it as a, as a big ECA market. It's followed by Saudi Arabia, which five years ago I don't think even looked at ECA. To give, so to give you a measure of, again, the, 
the, the evolution of the ECA product. Uh, it, it shows you that the two major markets have suddenly embraced it. And what they've also embraced are the project finance structures. I mean, we're very much aligned to project finance rather than trade finance. It's a quirk of my, my, my uh, unit. Uh, but again, five years ago, only 20% of project finance solutions had ECA. I would say it's around 80% today certainly has ECA as part of that solution. Again, we have to understand the project structures and, and understand the mechanisms that go into those project structures. Another trend has been local currency structures. We're certainly seeing now local currency financing, ruble financing, Mexican pesos, uh, Brazilian reis suddenly coming into play. And I actually think um, with the move to an offshore market for the renminbi, I think you'll start to see some structures around that as, as trade continues around the renminbi and, and the renminbi deposit base increases outside of China and, and Hong Kong. So again, I see that as, as a, a solution for the future. And the other big trend, and some of my colleagues in, this, in the audience today will suddenly understand this, move to capital market solutions outside of traditional bank funding. That is very much the theme. You've heard originate to distribute as a, as a theme among some banks. I think the vanguard, vanguard for, for capital market solutions has been led by the aviation industry. Uh, but what we did see, for instance, in the Eurozone crisis last year was the American market suddenly catching fright when, when it had a lot of capital market solutions for uh, support into Europe and then suddenly stopped. Um, I think that's eased at the moment, but again, if I, I suspect if there's another Eurozone issue around Greece, etc., I think that will, that will reduce again. So the American capital market is very well developed. We're seeing a number of different players coming in to support ECAs. We're beginning to see insurance companies possibly coming in as direct lenders, and certainly a, a number of private placement opportunities for e the ECA product. So again, I see that as an evolution. To some extent, we know Germany has already developed that with the covered bond solution. We've seen uh, also the Danish pension fund being brought into the ELO schemes, the direct funded schemes from, from Denmark. So again, these are all, let's say, alternatives to the traditional bank funding mechanisms or the bilateral bank funding mechanisms. And finally, the, the, the success, I believe, the ECA product during the, the, the recent crisis has been very much the stability of the ECAs to provide stable premium rates. I mean, at the time when commercial rates were going up and down like, like a yo-yo half the time, the fact that you could have a consistent source of medium-term funding and finance through a recognised mechanism of stable premium rates was essential in my mind to create that, that, that growth in the, in the marketplace. And I hope that will continue. There's a lot of talk, I believe, in the Bone Union about increased premium rates, but I think that has been, for me, a fundamental aspect of, of, of uh, source funding and, and stability of funding. And all I would say, final comment to me, I picked up the FT today, the supplement was around the, the Middle East, and the headline was need for funds at its greatest at this point in time. And I think the ECA product lends itself to that. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, I, I would like to continue a little bit with the liquidity and the Basel three discussion, but I would like to uh, give Peter the opportunity to have just a, a common remark on the, on the Basel three question, Peter, you already introduced. Um, and the Basel three question is some, somewhere everywhere in the discussion. Um, and the question for me is um, the relevance of an ECA of the Basel three. So will Basel three improve an ECA's competitiveness? Or what is the result of Basel three for, for you as an export today, especially in Brazil? Right. Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, maybe, actually. <laughs> maybe, yes. Uh, it's a very specific issue I'll talk about, um, but it does serve to uh, help understand the practical consequences of regulatory changes 
on the business of ECAs. And also to illustrate uh, the shift in the center of gravity of the global economy, if I may quote Professor Kwa from this little booklet here. Um, it's probably safe to say that uh, everything you've heard about Basel III, as, as far as ECA business is concerned, is negative. Uh, it's, given what the world went through in the last two or three years, it's sensible, at the very least, for uh, the Basel III framework to better align capital requirements with, um, with risks. The problem is we don't want to chase away the banks, and that's apparently what, what's happening or will happen. Um, further on down the line as people implement the Basel III guidelines. Uh, beside, despite having better capitalized banks, Brazil will face the same difficulties as other countries um, as far as the ECA guarantees are concerned. Uh, it's been very difficult to attract banks into this business for us. Uh, part of our mission is uh, to bring in private players into this segment of the market. And, uh, but the realities of high funding costs in Brazil have prevented us from doing this successfully uh, so far. Currently, our final financial system has, private financial system, has no appetite for long-term risks like the uh, ECA transactions that we deal with. Uh, so it's been an uphill battle, and um, we haven't lost yet, but we're very far away from the top. And as a result, only state-controlled banks in Brazil are active in, in uh, medium long-term uh, financing of exporters. Uh, namely, those are the, the National Development Bank and the Bank of Brazil. Um, although this is not the ideal situation, it's, so far it hasn't been really a source of problems. Uh, the state banks are solid institutions, uh, their balance sheets are healthy, even if you uh, disconsider the Treasury support. Um, but the problem is we have uh, an enormous amount of investment coming up in Brazil that has to be made in infrastructure. It, it ranges from the oil sector uh, with the pre-salt, uh, ports, airports, railroads, energy, etc. You name it, we need it uh, to reduce the cost of production of Brazilian companies and to increase their competitiveness. And uh, also all the facilities related to the World Cup and the Olympic Games. So these are also long-term commitments that the private sector probably can't deal with alone. So government involvement will be key to get these projects off the ground. And they may just, all this demand for funding may just take away from the state bank's ability to maintain the degree of financing support for MLT exports in the future. Um, at the same time, Brazilian exporters are facing tougher competition in the larger traditional and now decelerating G7 markets. And this is pushing them towards new and riskier markets where ECA support is essential for, for them to compete. Uh, this is a trend we've seen clearly in the, at SBC, at the company I work with. Um, where there's been a lot more demand for cover in African and Central American countries in the last uh, three or four years. So we have a scenario where demand for financing is increasing, but supply is shrinking due to shifting priorities and because of regulatory compliance, uh, because the state banks in Brazil, according to uh, Brazilian central bank uh, rules, need to comply with 
Basel guidelines, just like any other commercial bank. Uh, so it's a challenging outlook, uh, but having said all this, we and other improving sovereigns have something, going, something good going for us. Uh, Basel III capital requirements will increase across the board regardless of asset ratings uh, due to the 3% leverage ratio. A Brazilian guarantee today has a higher risk weight than a AAA country guarantee. It's 50% versus 0%, which means that if you take Basel II, uh, the current Basel II 8% of uh, risk-weighted assets capital requirement, a bank needs to set aside 4% of, uh, for Brazil guaranteed assets, uh, whereas a, a, AAA, uh, a bank working with a AAA guarantee sets aside 0% or doesn't set aside anything. But with the new rules, everyone will have to have that 3% of assets, not risk-weighted assets, but assets. Um, since this is a non-cumulative requirement, the, the relative cost uh, Will, be, will go from 4 versus 0% to 4 versus 3%, which is a significant amount of change. Uh, and this should bring more competitive, competitiveness uh, to the Brazilian export credit guarantee relative to the AAA uh, guarantees. Now this is mostly speculation on our part, but it's not just based on theory, it's based on the fact that we've seen a lot more interest uh, from foreign banks in working with our, with our cover in the last two, not the last two years, but up to 2010 when uh, the Eurozone crisis uh, erupted. Uh, so we may be looking at the state banks, the Brazilian state banks, pulling back from financing MLT transactions, but private, mostly foreign banks, picking up the slack once the Eurozone troubles subside. Um, Time will tell whether this is, and this is despite Basel III, I'm saying. Uh, time will tell if this will come true. And of course it depends on uh, international adoption of uh, Basel III, which is far from a given. Uh, but it's reasonable to expect that something will change. It may not be the lever leverage ratio that will be implemented, but something similar will have to, to be implemented. <coughs> and if the Brazilian sovereign uh, Keeps, maintains the course that it's been on for the last 10 years, uh, our pure cover product should become more attractive. Okay. Well, I'd like to continue a little bit with the, with the liquidity in the bill. Three <coughs> question and a couple of quick and short questions and, and quick and short answers. And last may, may I ask you, you mentioned the, um, the crisis, the Euro debt crisis, uh, the liquidity. Do you see, because we some, sometimes uh, we discuss Greece and the impact of uh, debt haircut, for example, or an exit from the Eurozone, and the big impact on, on global trade. Is there a big impact on, a, let's say, a relatively small country uh, like Greece, and, uh, or is it a general impact because of the, let's say, the, the globalization? What is, what is your view on the, on the impact on the Euro crisis um, regarding global trade? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, I think the, uh, the impact was first, uh, you know, for the, the banks that, that didn't have access to dollar funding, uh, the, the U.S. money market funds pulled back and, and that really put out a lot of, and, and the banks that were mostly affected were the more marginal banks, you know, first of all the French, but, but then also the, the ones out in, in Korea and other places. And, and uh, these were very, very dramatic shifts that happened in very, very short term. So that had an effect 
on, on all the poorer countries in Africa and around the world. Then you have overlaying this uh, the whole question of regulation and new capital requirements where people are or banks are starting to implement uh, and play by the kind of Basel III rules already now uh, and uh, that is having effects uh, because you basically take and we mentioned the liquidity ratio here for example what's happening there is that the banks have to take basically all its off balance sheet items and letters of credits are off balance sheet add on to the, the balance sheet and then apply that 3% and do it basically at 100% and and that you know we, we know that that uh, letters of credits or trade finance is a high volume low margin business so anything that kind of affects that will have rather dramatic effects on on the business so i think these are our things and we're seeing it as i said very clearly across the board uh, among all the countries in different respects but but we clearly see it very clearly let me also say that when it comes to the the export credit agencies there also been some development because they're also in fact uh, impacted by this and you had uh, one very clear uh, example of, of the negative effects which was the uh, uh, export uh, export credit in Norway, <coughs> which um, you know had some additional capital requirements, and uh, during the period of good times, you know it had been privatized uh, a little bit. Uh, so the the um, the private parties didn't want to put any in any money. So the government decided to now let's start a new development mm -hmm. or export credit agency, and let the other one go. And then suddenly it went from AAA down to basically giant bond in over a day and that shocked the market mm -hmm. so this this whole thing now with what type of, of credit rating will export credit agencies have under the new system especially as, as countries are being downgraded and therefore also the export credit agencies <coughs> I think how this whole thing will play out uh, is, is a little bit uncertain but it's not good news it's going to have also negative effects on the system. That's a very short additional question. The Global Trade Funds Program you mentioned before, you have been very successfully introduced during the financial and economic crisis 2009. Is there an additional idea for, for a situation you described before? From, yeah, we from are, an we IT perspective? We, we, you know, we were, during last year, we were kind of facing some yeah. of these programs out. But now we're resurrecting everything we can, and we got to, for those who interest afterwards. Gina Baker heading up, red-haired lady up there, uh, heading up that that effort, and and. So Gina will answer all the questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, thank you very much, John. Uh, John, if I if I we mentioned before the direct lending and the few cover question, is it something if the banks are not there or there's not sufficient liquidity uh, from some European banks? For example, US dollar liquidity. Is it a solution to introduce new instruments? Is it really a good idea that European countries, governments, introduce direct lending systems with regard to their uh, debts, uh, etc.? Is it really a, is something you, you would ask for? Would ECGD, Patrick Crawford, who is the room, should ECGD UK export funds introduce direct lending? Well, I think as, uh, as an exporter, we would say that we would require, um, you know, to be competitive in the international markets. And uh, if we look around uh, the other uh, ECAs, both OECD and non-OECD, a number of them do direct lending uh, uh, structures. What it does is it gives the borrower certainty of, of, of availability of funding, gives it, it gives it certainty on pricing, um, and takes away that, uh, that, that that whole area of. Um, of, 
a, a risk that maybe sign a contract today and in, uh, in a few years' time when you're actually taking delivery, the, the funding isn't there. So I think the short answer is yes, we would certainly like to see it. Unfortunately, in the UK, we don't have it. Um, alternatives, uh, we've heard touched on covered bonds and, and, and accessing the capital markets. I think for certain, uh, certain contracts, I think the applicability of that sort of structure really is driven by the nature of your contract. The fa certainly the value and the size of it is not going to be applicable for, for smaller value contracts. Um, if you've got, you know, it's been primarily developed for, 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 for the commercial aviation market um, as, as a product because you've got discrete um, large value um, uh, cash flow requirements which you can match into the bond market. Uh, if you've got a more more complex cash flow, more complex drawing process and program under, uh, under an export contract. The cost of carry associated with, 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 with a, bonds, uh, a bond mm. or capital market supported uh, funding solution is really prohibitive. Mm. So it, it's horses for courses, but yes, we'd love to see that and uh, to have that uh, product here in the UK. Mm. Put, put it on the risk list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before, before we quickly move maybe to another topic, I would like to ask Geetha because we. Uh, several times touched the question of how the DFIs, the direct international financial institutions, and the export credit agency as national instruments could, let's say, join forces. So um, from your point of view, how can the DFIs like IFC or EBRD in London or the European Investment Bank and export credit agencies could cooperate to provide financing? It's a little bit difficult because you have two different angles. You, we, or you support the exporter and the direct financial institutions support the importer. But is there a solution um, or something maybe um, uh, there what, what could support both sides? There's absolutely great logic in the cooperation between ECAs and uh, DFIs, uh, multilateral development banks, because both of them focus on only uh, core uh, developmental issues. Uh, well, um, uh, multilateral banks, DFIs, are not going to ensure corporate risk, definitely not. They're going to rather take risks on banks, particularly when it comes to letter of credit transactions. So, uh, you know, and neither are they going to compete with ECAs in any form of activity. On the contrary, they could be helpful in setting up similar institutions where in low-income countries, small developing countries, or they could help, uh, you know, uh, strengthen their operations by you know, taking care of the bottom lines. And um, where actively we could work together is basically in risk sharing and in risk pooling so that uh, we are not uh, crowding out. In fact, uh, we, uh, there have been such instances in the past when ADB you know, had given a loan to Exim Thailand for to enable them to give both pre-ship and post-ship and facilities to their exporters. And in fact, ADB also did something in Pakistan. IFC su supported the Brazilian banks. EBRD, its role in Russia, what they have done. So when there is a complete fall in the confidence levels amongst institutions, bank between banks themselves, I mean, the only way you could get back on rails is by them stepping in and ensuring that the capacities are complementary to each other and uh, 
you know, work together to mm -hmm. achieve that. Thank, thank you. Be before we go on, I think um, it will be very interesting for the audience to discuss the liquidity question. I would like to introduce a second topic which might be very interesting to the audience as well. Um, and the overall uh, discussion is on, on global standards. What do we, do we mean by global standards? The question of OECD and non-OECD export promotion instruments. Some of you mentioned before the question of rules and regulations for OECD um, export promotion instruments with specific rules for medium and long-term business, certain maturity, environmental standards, etc. And the other question of non-OECDs also being invited um, to develop maybe uh, new global common standards. And uh, Achimenka, I would like to, to, to ask you, uh, because it's, it's a very, very big discussion um, and uh, it's difficult to answer that one in five minutes, one hour, one week, one year, because it's a long <coughs> discussion. But, um, from your point of view, why are they necessary? Well, that's um, <laughs> certainly something for a very long lecture, if you uh, <laughs> want so. Um, but, but first of all, I would like to accommodate Danny a bit, because there is no brilliant mastermind in Germany thinking all night how to promote further exports. And uh, in, in our field, we are um, rather conservative, I think, in uh, providing export credit support. Um, and we believe very much in the international standards to help us being cautious, being reasonable in what we do. Uh, export credits is a very specific field where we all compete, and in the same we co uh, time we cooperate. And um, it's uh, something where we have a lot of transparency between us, and um, I think international standards are an extremely important element in creating this transparency. Um, uh, if you look into the WTO rules, they are very generic, um, making a reference to certain parts of what we call the OECD arrangement, which by the way is not an OECD text, but a standalone agreement. Um, and this texts we have in the OECD, who are much more specific, um, help us a lot to understand what the competitors do. And um, in the same time, we create additional transparency in product development. So if we have a brilliant idea, uh, we know that our competitors will know this within a week, because there are nice people like Peter Lukita, who have their qualified staff who is sitting over there looking precisely what we are doing and telling the others you should do the same. So we need a balance in product development, in risk appetite, in what we charge for um, our products, and this is being established by international rules. If we would not have that, we would have a race to the bottom. That means if I'm cheaper than my French or Italian competitor, um, uh, I help my exporter more than he does, so he will increase his capability to, to support exporters. Um, we will have a distortion of trade because it's no longer the price and the quality of the product to count. Um, and um, we will have risks for our budgets we would be very wise not to assume. And uh, we have a range of standards developed mainly through the OECD, which I consider very wise, which are not, which are not covering all and everything, 
but um, where we are very happy to see that UNCTAD, for instance, starts discussing uh, some standards for responsible lending in order to avoid that highly indebted countries take other debts they, they can't pay afterwards and the further debts they won't pay either. Um, we have quite interesting discussions with uh, partners outside of the OECD and um, to accommodate you a bit more, my understanding is that our Chinese partners are starting to look a bit like we look into these topics and understanding that they are very aggressively pushing promotion of exports through export credit support, this will make other people move in the same direction. We have seen that with the Americans who have matched the Chinese conditions on the locomotive project in Pakistan. And uh, this is possible under the OECD rules. If an outsider does something, uh, you have to notify in the OECD and then you can match that. If uh, we do the same in Germany. Everybody else will say, okay, China does it, Germany does it, the United States does it. It will end, to a certain extent, these rules. There is a, certain, a second very broad uh, part of um, standards uh, we developed, which refer more to environment, uh, social aspects, uh, human rights. We discussed very intensively recently in, in the OECD when reviewing the, the common approaches on environment. Um, there, this is very much about reputation. We all are government institutions and uh, I think all of our governments from whatever country is, are not very much interested to getting involved into projects which we would not like to see realized in our own countries. So I think there is a development um, uh, for avoiding reputational risks. I think it's in the same time using the possibilities of export credit agencies to do something for a better world. Um, I advocated personally very much to get involved in bribery, in, a, in, in combating bribery, not in bribery. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in doing what export credit agencies can do in this field, we have in all of our countries laws prohibiting bribery in international business transactions. It's a crime. And we can create additional awareness that this is not okay through the export credit agencies. This is an active role we can take, and we start in this direction in the OECD, simply making clear there is a criminal offense, and this makes your contracts void if you come afterwards to see a judge or your export credit agency. Um, there's a third element in this field of social and environmental aspects, uh, which is very important too. Um, if all e export credit agencies agree on something, it shows to what export credit agencies are not fit to do. If a German exporter sells the printing machines to somebody who is producing newspapers, he is neither capable to organize the working conditions and control the working conditions in the shop where he's selling the machine, nor to control the newspapers printed on his machines. So this is something when the ECA sit together and discuss what is reasonable and feasible for an export credit agencies and set a standard, it's much easier to convince our constituencies on what is really reasonable for export credit agencies. So we are very much engaged in developing these in international standards in Germany because we think it's very useful to avoid undue competition 
It's reinforcing transparency. It's not making our client in another country telling us what our competitors do, but we just look into the book and know it. And we call each other and ask the other one, and he will answer correctly. And this is making the thing, uh, leveling the playing field and making really uh, trade support something useful, reasonable, where it is useful and reasonable and avoiding it where it's unreasonable uh, for a government to get engaged. So this is a rather long answer for this <laughs> constituency, but I try to be shorter than to give a full lecture. <laughs> I'd like to ask uh, Peter, uh, um, um, Peter and, and, and Gita and Peter especially, especially uh, on, on the question, um, what is the right framework, etc. Do we have global standards in 2020? But I think it is much better to ask the audience to ask my question, so I'll give you my list. Um, so um, maybe we, we, we start with a few Q's and A's from you on course, every topic what we have discussed here, but focusing, um, if you like, on the liquidity question, but also the global standards question, what is the right framework? Do we have global standards in 2020? And I'm, I'm grateful for your short questions. Maybe not uh, deliver a public lecture as well. That's what we try to do, short questions, and we try to be very short in our answers and we don't have space to discuss. So. Please. Maybe you just give your name and who, who you are. Yeah, um, I'm Vandana from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, um, essentially focus on the clean energy funding and I've just been looking at ECS funding to clean energy and my question is uh, OECD support versus non-OECD support. So we've just looked at the deal in Denmark and the direct lending deal. And I just want to know what's your opinion on when China Sinoshore or China Exim Bank decides to get into the direct lending game, um, their pockets are much deeper than Denmark or even US Exim, the scale of what they lend. Um, according to US Exim estimates, it's about $100 billion a year through uh, their two or three agencies that they have. So how do, you, how do the OECD countries, uh, ECAs, kind of combat that and, and try to make sure that the rest of the world also follows some rules as far as funding is concerned. You have a specific, uh, which panelist, panelist uh, should answer? Whoever wants, okay. <laughs> well, I'll make a comment if I may, okay. just on, on the Chinese situation, bearing in mind, and I'm taking Achim's point about going across the world and doing different things. I mean, we, we do, everyone shares in, in that sense, I'd say, but we have a particular experience of the Chinese schemes. All I would say at the moment, China has deep pockets anyway. It just goes to China Development Bank, you know, and, and whenever I go there and say, well, we've done three billion with Petrobras, they say, well, we've done 10 billion with Petrobras, you know, so it's, it's, it exists. What I can assure you, though, dealing with Sinoshore is, is not half as much fun as dealing with the rest of the ECA world, and it takes a hell of a lot longer to get Chinese ECA through. That's the slight difference at the moment. I think that's changing. I think, uh, I think the Chinese banks generally are not as, let's say, forthcoming as they might have been in the past. So th there may be some change in that process. But that competition has been around for five years. I don't think that's anything new in that sense. If anything, I think it's the, it's the, the, the let's say, the, the other developed parts of the developed world that have had to come up with these schemes to compete with the Chinese, I would suggest. Well, that's, that's my perspective as a banker. <laughs> well, I, uh, we have worked quite a lot with the uh, Chinese uh, uh, banks and and the uh, the regulators, in the sense that we have this uh, the basis of our our environmental and social standards is the basis of something called the equator principles that are used by 
most of the project finance uh, banks in, in the world, and they're also the basis, or they're very similar today to the export credit agency rules that, that most of those institutions have. And we have worked with, we, we had one bank that actually became an equated bank in, in um, China. The regulators became so interested, so they asked us to come have uh, seminars with them, and they, we had a green credit policy now coming out with the regulators there. So they are, they are starting to, to, this is part of their harmonious policy, which is taking care of the environment, since that's a big issue there. So they're starting to at least have that debate, and it's interesting that some of the surrounding countries are actually going out to China to study standards. We had the Vietnamese delegation in Beijing on that, for example. At the same time, we are now working with Chinese firms and some of their big institutions, China Development Bank and others, as they go into Africa. We just did one deal in Dar es Salaam, for example, where there was an office building, no sewage system whatsoever, everything out in the harbor. We came in and they so we put in a sewage system and they accepted it. So they, they're starting to learn at least. So I think there's a dialogue there now that, that is starting to at least happen and I think it's going to intensify going forward. If you might allow us for a moment to go to first principles. Um, in the debate in the U.S. about the renewal of the Exim Bank, uh, Delta Airlines made a, a big um, criticism of it that, that this is distortionary subsidy to exporters and their foreign competitors by the rest of the domestic economy. I wonder if, if Danny, you might sort of as an economist address this and, and Joachim as a public practitioner um, sort of address this criticism. Um, no, no, that's interesting. I wasn't familiar with that particular debate in the United States. I can see how the other, you know, how, how the other airlines uh, would take some umbrage at you know, the U.S. federal government stepping in um, to, to promote this, this distortionary subsidy in their, in their view. I suppose that the U.S. government to some degree can argue for how this is for the national good that we need a national champion. And that at this point, the, the prime candidate for national champion is whichever airlines that they've chosen. Um, and, you know, it's a difficult problem. It's a difficult problem that I don't think admits of, an, uh, of a direct, convenient line of reasoning. Um, one would, you know, the airlines industry will have to figure out how much of their carriers are domestic, how much international, where their national competitiveness lies. If the case is to be made that this benefits the national economy, there's still an economic argument to be made. So I think that would be an interesting case to try and follow. I'd be interested to see what practitioners think. But I think from an economics, academic perspective, it's not open and shut. There are interesting issues here to get engaged with. It's a very interesting case, and I'm sure that uh, Albus, for example, would give a, give, give a good comment on that. But I think uh, Achim Henko definitely knows the details and has a specific opinion on that one. Well, it, it's definitely an extremely interesting question um, because export credit agencies work with exports. So they provide support to a buyer in another country which is not available for a buyer in the own country. Um, in most markets, this is not very relevant because the, the national buyer um, is in the market 
um, and, and you ha don't have criticism. Um, but in the field of airplanes, you have this criticism, and Delta made it very formally, um, that um, non-national aircraft buyers get finance with export credit agency support, and the national buyer, the, who is a competitor, does not have the same situation. This is the same for British, German, or French uh, airlines who are criticizing um, this, what they feel is an asymmetry in support. Um, uh, sometimes uh, discussion is about not providing support, sometimes it's about providing support for them too. Um, I um, understand that there is a lot of pressure. I think there is a certain prudence of export credit agencies in not working actively in, in additional distortion of trade. And I think there is a very intensive discussion on the way uh, between the producers, the ECAs, and interested airlines how to, to, to tackle this uh, question. Um, but uh, uh, the, the point from the outset, which is very specific for airlines because it's a a uh, relatively limited market of um, uh, companies who are competing there and it's on the international field that this competition between airlines is running where this support might really create a difference is, is pertinent. Thank you. Question over there. Gentlemen. Um, yes, hello. Okay. Yeah. Meyer from, uh, from LSE. I was uh, really interested in uh, sort of towards the end of the panel, you linked the role of ECAs into the wider issues of global trade governance, and especially you, you touched upon a few areas, uh, environmental standards, labor standards, and also uh, in terms of bribery uh, or anti-bribery, um, how ECAs can play a positive role. Um, what other areas do you see could be potentially, uh, this ECAs could potentially play this positive role, and maybe more importantly, uh, where do you see the big obstacles to actually creating such a regulatory framework uh, that would eliminate the uh, sort of wrong incentive that you described towards the end? Specific panelists or uh, open to all? Okay. <laughs> Anyone wants to answer? <coughs> yeah, okay. Um, well, um, if I try to start, um, what I try to make clear is that what an ECA can do is limited. Um, if you have a, a huge project and a project finance where the export credit agencies are engaged in the project from the outset, then you can structure a lot of things into this project. Um, if you have a normal sale of a machine, uh, your influence is, is normally very limited. And if your sale is going to a big project and you have a small share, then you have virtually no influence. So you really have to balance what you can reasonably do. Um, I gave the figures for Germany in the beginning. We, we came from 1.7, uh, we went beyond 3%, it's coming down again because exports are developing quicker than we are developing with export credit support. Um, we have to look into, into uh, Beha international behavior generally and not only from an export credit uh, perspective. There are some specific possibilities to create awareness, to, to ask additional questions, and, and this in a balanced way, really in close cooperation with our competitors who hopefully do the same. 
Um, but the 97% of exports we do not cover, you have to look into them too. Um, and so, so you have your, to, to develop your standards in other places, and there is a very long tradition, if you look to international labor organization, who was set up to do specifically that. And in some places you can support that, in others not. So we have to be modest in some way on what we can do, but what we can do, we really have to do it in a very active way. I suppose, if I can just add in. So Henning, I, th I suppose the export credit agencies could also pay some mind to where the target market is, where you know, the resistance to imports, you know, to expand the line that I was trying to push, the resistance to imports that emerges in developed economies is quite different in nature from the resistance to imports that appear in emerging economies. And across emerging economies, whether you're in Latin America or East Asia, again, that resistance is different. Some of it just comes from uh, you know, a lack of, lack of capacity and inability to afford certain goods. Some of it comes from political resistance. Some of it comes from, gosh, you know, the protectionist ethos that has emerged in particular economies. So I guess an export credit agency could round off the work that it does, not just on the side of the home production, but also with a mind to what happens and how it sells to different parts of the world. The Chinese, for instance, East Asia, I mean, there's often a remark about how difficult it is to do business or to sell to East Asia. Well, when one understands that East Asians have a distinction between public consumption, enjoying certain kinds of public iconic luxury goods consumption, at the same time that they are willing to save large amounts, not import tremendously, seems to me that that can be a huge boost to Western developed economies who want to export East. And it seems like ECAs and such agencies could get involved in developing that kind of expertise. I should like to take up your thread of your earlier point, that um, since the Second World War, uh, there has been an extraordinary increase in personal uh, standards of living. But of course, the consequences of this is the European crisis and the world crisis of today, where you had uh, industries and employment created on tomorrow and our grandchildren. Now, when money generally gets doesn't work anymore. The markets move into physicals. So my question to you today is, to what extent do you think the move back to clearing arrangements, to counter-trade arrangements, will come about? And to what extent will export credit agencies be prepared to actually insure against the uh, risk of non-delivery? It, it might be that our trading system will no longer give us a choice. We will not have the luxury of answering your question negatively, that we will have to get agencies involved intimately in these kinds of exchanges. And the historical pattern of mortgaging against future income, as intimately as all strata of society have done in the developed world, will no longer be a viable way to do business. So maybe two, two questions and then we have some final remarks. This gentleman over there. Okay. Okay. Put it, put it, that one. Yeah. 
John Wasnich from the British Chambers of Commerce. Um, the, cha the local chamber network is one of the first organisations that businesses turn to in the UK when they're considering exporting. Um, and about a third of our 100,000 members are exporters. We did some work uh, a few months ago um, about UK export finance, among other things, and discovered that despite all the services and uh, advice that the chambers offer, um, about a fifth of exporters among our members were completely unaware of the existence of UK export finance. So I'd be really interested uh, to know from a couple of the members of the panel, uh, those that feel best able to answer, what is global best practice around establishing clear and visible routes to market for state-backed export finance products? It's, it's a fact, um, I think, in any country. Um, there will be definitely a considerable section of exporters who may not even be aware of such an institution or such a scheme being there. But let me tell you, when things get difficult, after all, an economic cycle is always never ascending. People come around. Our personal experience in, back in India with ECGC is that Whenever we used to go and try to canvas, they would say, oh, all my markets are US and Europe, the most developed, we don't want any cover. Okay, so now what has happened, when I look at the trend, the business trend that we have, India per se has decreased, I mean, the, 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 the share of, uh, though Euro, uh, Eurozone, Euro, Europe is the largest, uh, share in the destination market, uh, but it's declining very fast. Same is the case with USA. And now I'm seeing that my business on Europe, every country in Europe and USA is rapidly increasing. So it's exactly, you know, countering it. And our government has specifically said diversify go to Latin America, go to Africa, concentrate on ASEAN, and uh, Middle East, North Africa, MENA is another big market for us, <coughs> Dubai. Now, here we see our, our coverage is just steady. It doesn't increase, whereas the country's performance has increased tremendously. Whereas our stake in Europe markets and in US has been growing, and this is a stage where ECA cannot step back Having committed, I may not take fresh exposures on these markets, but already underwritten exposures, I have to continue to hold. So this is the peculiar role of ECA when it comes to the economic cycles. I, I, I don't know whether I could reply if anyone else wants to supplement. Is that also maybe that we Well, any comment I would make, I mean, being based in the UK, um, I think it's fair to say that uh, the UK government schemes, it's all more recent than Patrick's here tonight, so um, you can make comment better than me, but I don't think they have been so well publicised as with other countries, certainly um, in the past five years. I would say that's changed considerably. And it goes back to my comment I made earlier, that I just sense that ECA is known by so many more people today than it ever has been. 
And I, you know, whilst I can't really comment on the, on the smaller end of it, I just think it, it's, it's heavily broadcast around the world. So any UK exporter that's speaking to his buyer uh, and will talk, you know, and, 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 and talk about terms, et cetera, will generally have a comment, I'm sure, that says, have you thought about export finance? <coughs> Last question over there. Thank you very much. Um, a question moving slightly away from liquidity and um, focus please on uh, the answer from Dr. Peter Mulevida. Um, I rec uh, the question reverts around the potential role of ECAs as development agencies. I remember some years ago, Indian Exim uh, Bank meant to program for IC9000 and promoting <coughs> industrial clusters for exporters and a great <coughs> experience on how that program has gone. And the supplementary question to that is whether this, that this potential role and experience of political industrial clusters might promote the idea of exports as a top policy priority or else be used to deal with Delhi Crowd's uh, issue of helping to promote imports to a large industrial cluster and therefore reducing uh, global imbalances. Thank you very much. Okay. I, I may not be knowing thoroughly about the products or the uh, interventions of Indian Exim Bank, but I know for sure uh, the, the activities that they have done for the clusters uh, basically is for uh, self-help groups and uh, certain women-oriented uh, industries. And uh, you know, with Indian uh, economy and its uh, peculiar inherent uh, problems, there's a lot of development that still needs to be uh, done. And um, when it's nothing to do, uh, if your apprehension is it was to thwart some imports, no, it was basically, I, I remember they did something in, in a state called Orissa with some uh, very low income, below poverty line family children uh, to promote football and then, you know, they tried to do something like that. I mean, basically, or they would have helped some jute um, baskets um, making industry. So it is purely developmental. I don't think we need to worry about um, you know, the competition being unfair or, you know, those kind of angles. Th th thank you. So I think we could discuss for another two or three hours, but I understand that uh, it's spring in London and it's a very nice and warm evening. So what I would like to ask our panelists is to give a very short final remark. Uh, I have a short question and we'll be grateful for a couple of words. I would like to start with, with Lars Tunnel. And you, you're allowed to, uh, to answer with yes and no, of course. <laughs> uh, the future of trade and export finance, the IFC perspective, that's not a yes or no question. Well, I, I, I think it's clear from this discussion that, that uh, there is going to be a real role for export credit agencies. I think the, the, the uh, also clear here is that it's a question also how do we get the exports to work with the imports, uh, both sides of it, and that gets me to the question of how, what, what can we do to facilitate imports in the less developed countries in the emerging markets and I think that's, that's an interesting and we have some projects that we're working on in, in that context. I think also the question of, of continuing to, to, to work on standards. I remember when I was at, at AVB in the 80s and we basically, there was no standards then really on, on the financial side so you basically put production where you had the best financial schemes. 
and we've gotten away from that. I think we have gotten away now from, from competing with environmental and social standards. But I think continue that work, I think, is going to be very important for the credibility of the system <coughs> going forward. Thank you very much. I, I will ask the economists, the future of, of trade and export, the economists' perspective. Do you agree with Lars? We're all economists up here, my feeling. I'm um, a lawyer. So I, I agree with Lars, and I would add further, if I may, that you know, just as we have a worry about developing import capacity in the emerging economies, we should also worry about resisting imports pushback in the developed economy because it is the excessive imports in the developed economies, in the United States in particular, that we, we find most associated with the problem of global imbalances that characterize the world's trading system in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis. So I agree, and I hope that things turn out the way that we would like them. My disaster scenario in my head is that these trade imbalances are not going to go away, that if we're not careful, trade is going to appear out there to people to be more and more unbalanced. And that fear about trade taking away our jobs becomes more and more pronounced. And that more and more people will worry that imports will bedevil their economy's performance. That perception is a problem. And that's a perception, that problem is one that stands in the way of our expanding a hugely successful global trading system that has helped propel economic growth for the last 150 years. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Uh, Pedro, the relationship between the national and the international financial institutions? Uh, well, I can talk about that in There's Brazil. There's a future. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, um, Brazil is, is more and more interesting uh, market for uh, foreign institutions. Um, it's a very difficult market to work in because it's highly concentrated on the, uh, as far as banking is concerned, there are three large private banks and three large state banks, uh, and the supervision is very careful and strict, but um, hopefully uh, things will advance in the near future. Again, in the medium long term business, we welcome foreign players who have experience in this with open arms, like the Statue of Christ at the top of uh, the mountain in Rio. Um, I think it, it interest uh, is up with the investment grade status that uh, happened a few years back, and uh, with Brazil's growing tendency to be looked at as a, uh, an exporting platform, a regional export platform uh, in an attractive region of, of South America. Um, just like to add that Brazil is one of the top economies of the world, but it's responsible for a disproportionately small fraction of global trade uh, for various historic and geographical reasons. Um, SPC and the government are engaged in redressing this situation, but uh, always in cooperation with the with other countries and within the rules of the international system and global standards. Thank you. Very quick, the perfect ECA for an exporter. Oh, well, very quickly, I think if we look at our Vexa uh, benchmarking, if we can tick all those 10 boxes and have a good product mix, um, get out there and, and speak with the question is asked about getting the message about out to the exporter. 
uh, get out there and speak to, to exporters, large and small, um, complement the private market and work with it. Perfect ECA for a bank, Peter? For the perfect, the perfect ECA for you as a bank. <laughs> Um, perfect ECA. That's a good question because uh, we, we 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 move with them all. You see, so they all they all have their moments. It's, it's fair to say. So, um, <laughs> um, but no, I think I think what I as I said earlier, I think uh, the flexibility today of, of ECAs, and I've been in this business a long time. If you compare how it was 15 years ago, when it, it was a struggle to talk about. Uh, sort of uh, sourcing and elements of that and, and the process of that and, uh, and the restrictions attached to it. Today, all ECAs, I think, adopt a, a very high flexible standard and I think that we've moved on with the time. So I, despite some of the sort of negativity around trade barriers, I, I do think ECAs do perform an immense function in getting cross-border trade going. So uh, I'm, I'm quite content at the moment. Thank you. I hope we work for that. Um, um, if I look to Patrick, um, who is um, representing the oldest ECA, I think we have. Uh, I have to. I am recalling a discussion with a colleague from UK Treasury about the usefulness of having an ECA, um, and this about ten years ago. I am recalling a discussion with our experts in the Interministerial Committee in spring of 2007 who were very much concerned because we came down to 1.7% of German exports only. And we see now how quickly the world is changing and ECAs uh, get their role um, uh, as counter-cyclical instrument the governments have. They have to use it in a prudent way. We need international standards, that's I think an extremely important point. We need international coordination and we need international cooperation. And international cooperation, I think, Peter, if I look uh, to you, I recall a discussion uh, we had um, seven, eight years ago about cooperating on the ECA level between Germany and Brazil. And at that time there was no market for this cooperation because it was too expensive. And this changed too. Be today we have a perspective of really cooperating on concrete projects because the situation in the world changed. Uh, the role uh, Githa or Pedro played today is quite different in potential for cooperation too. So we have to model the future in the field of ECAs too. Perfect final question for Githa. How will be the cooperation, how the cooperation be, be between the ECAs will be. And I'm asking you, not only as a head of the Indian ECA, but also the Vice President of the World Union, and we have a lot of World Union colleagues in the room. The future sure. with ECAs in 2020. I know. <laughs> there are enough challenges. <laughs> Let me relap. As, as I have understood, ECAs are present in around 100 countries, different languages, culture, etc. But you know, the financial environments are different, economic problems are different, government policies different. They are very, each one is of a different shape and size. One is a government-owned department, one is an insurer, one is a financier. So we have everything put together in one basket. Now in such a situation, imagine different exporters, different countries, different ECAs, different regulators, different ECA frameworks. Now how does all, how do all these people come together and do something together? So that is one of the biggest challenges, how to harmonize 
the pricing, transaction costs, designing the products. So that's a, one of the major constraints. Second, let me just do quickly, of course, the rising defaults during the crisis time, claims and, you know, uh, even, even to break even during these times is such a tough challenge for all of us. Third, political risk. I don't know how to define it. You can't put it in a basket and say this is political risk. So much of uncertainty. So we can never be prepared for it any time. Along with it, the regulatory and document documentation risk to add up the, to the intensity. We operationally have other problems like, you know, the capacity, then expertise uh, to uh, analyze, and access to credit information, etc., etc. Now, very crucial with the European scenario is the funding. Now, I'm sure the governments don't have enough money to support the ACAs. What are we going to do? I, uh, back at home, uh, even we have a tough time trying to get additional capital. Now, ECAs are not highly leveraged institutions. They do not use complex derivative products, no off-balance sheet uh, stuff. So what are we going to do for the funding uh, crisis uh, when it comes to ECAs? Are we going to create a bond market? Are, are ECA-backed loan receivables? you know, going to be traded, as uh, you were mentioning. But the, another big challenge that comes to my mind is the implementation of Basel III. If it were to happen verbatim as to what they have concluded, they are not going to listen to us. ECA uh, backing support is not going to be attractive. On the contrary, the cost is going to be a huge uh, issue. Now, with all these challenges put together, the only way we can come out is the cooperation. Talking about cooperation, Bern Union, which has um, all the members and its daughter organization, which is Prague Club, which is also growing stronger. And as Lars started off his speech saying, covering about um, 1.7 or 1.8 trillion, more than 10% of the world trade, we are playing a very major role in the crisis time. But this is not it. It's already predicted that the global recovery is not to be seen for next two years. The recovery phase where ECA's role comes up is the most crucial one because recovery is the cycle in which the largest insolvencies, bankruptcies happen. So we're all gearing up. We're all uh, coordinating, cooperating with each other. Bern Union is also thinking about having some cooperation agreements with IFC and other multilateral development banks. And this is how we are going to place ourselves for the counter-cyclical role that we are meant for. Thank you. Thank you very much. No final remarks for me. I just would like to thank you for the, for the brilliant speech, for the brilliant remarks, comments on export finance, the global trade, the role of export credit agency. I would like to thank you audience as well for your, for your very good questions uh, and for your attention, your attendance. And please give our speakers uh, an applause.